Welcome back to another episode. Years ago, I read a book called Irresistible by Adam Alter. It's a book about addiction and how social media companies, streaming companies, games, and other digital technologies are designed to be as addicting as possible. I have decided to share what I learned about the science behind addiction with you. I will keep my focus on addiction and its biological connections and break this up into multiple episodes. Think of this as a crash course and my way of telling you what I think everybody should know about addiction. In this episode, I want to tell you what addiction is and how it happens. If you ask me, this is the best way to deal with a problem. People want to be educated. The Mr. Mackey approach of telling people drugs are bad is garbage. Yeah, it's true, but why should anyone believe you if you're not going to back up your claim? There is a mantra that I will repeat several times. Things can only control you as long as you remain ignorant of them. How can you do anything about an addiction or a behavior if you don't even know how it works? Now, please don't think I'm doing this as a community service to my listeners. Like me, I'm sure many of you would enjoy learning about addiction because it's interesting. I mean, it's neuroscience for crying out loud. If you can take away some lessons from this that help you spend more time being productive instead of mindlessly scrolling on an app, then that's a bonus. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and you want to support me, there are links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more in the description on Spotify, or you can go to my YouTube channel and click in the link in the banner that says support the channel. You can also check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. Okay, back to the episode. I want to let you know that I won't discuss neuroscience in this episode, not in depth. Addiction is sort of a process, and I'm going to try to explain that process in general terms and not focus too much on the names of regions in the brain and exactly what they're doing. In later episodes, I will talk about dopamine and some areas of the brain, but I'm no expert in those things and I don't want to be misleading, so I'll try to make everything simple. Okay, on to the task at hand. Let's begin by discussing the relationship between the mind and the brain. The brain is responsible for our thoughts and actions, but we are not the brain itself. Rather, we are a product of our brain's functions. For instance, I'm Eric. I have memories, likes and dislikes, knowledge, opinions, and a conscious experience. All of these are stored in my brain and constitute my mind. The mind encompasses all the mental processes that occur within the brain, while the brain is merely a physical organ. Therefore, these mental aspects are part of who we are as individuals, shaped by our unique experiences and brain wiring. I say this because we tend to stereotype addicts. We pretend that an addict is a certain type of person. This is grossly discriminatory, and it's not true. Addiction is something that comes from brain-environment interactions, and it can happen to anybody. The brain is just an organ. It's made of cells and obeys certain rules, meaning it can be tricked. That's how addictive substances work. Addiction hijacks the networks in our brains that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years. It's unbelievably powerful, often more powerful than the mind's ability to resist what it knows is wrong. People who are addicted say they both dislike the thing they are addicted to and they need it. There's a battle between what the person knows and what the brain wants. 
but we all possess the same brain. You will get a predictable reaction if you stimulate one region of any healthy person's brain. You don't have control over that. You don't control your behaviors or desires in real time. You can only hope to influence your future behaviors through specific choices. This ability to think ahead like this is thanks to a gift we have as humans. We call it metacognition, which is the awareness of our own thoughts. But it's not always active. Virtually every action you take happens subconsciously, without any real choice. But in animals, it's almost never active. Let's look at some examples. Peter Milner and Jim Olds performed operant conditioning experiments on rats in the 1950s. The rats would voluntarily push a lever, which gave them a shock through a tiny metal electrode implanted in their brain. This is not pleasant for the rats. The goal was to associate the lever with negative reinforcement. However, one rat pushed the lever more than 7,000 times in a 12-hour period. That's once every five seconds. The rat would not stop pushing the lever to eat or drink, and eventually the rat died of exhaustion. The electrode in the rat's brain was bent and contacted the brain's pleasure center. This tells us that the sensation of pleasure is more stimulating than the brain's capacity to keep you alive through the natural instincts of thirst, hunger, exhaustion, etc. And guess which regions of the brain addiction hijack? Have you ever escaped personal responsibility, homework, chores, or just the gut-wrenching feelings of hunger just because you wanted to finish another episode of The Office, for example? I bet many of us have. But even if you haven't, your brain is no different. The rat experiment was further carried over to a woman who suffered from depression. When the same region of her brain was stimulated, she laughed. When asked to explain what's going on, she couldn't. She could not explain her behavior because she didn't choose her behavior. It was beyond her control. Our environment, the sights, the smells, the flow of neurotransmitters, and the people around us influence us all subconsciously. And we don't choose that. Here's a controversial statement. There's no such thing as mind over matter. Your brain is made of matter, and matter is what controls the brain. And the brain is what produces the mind. We can watch your brain activity light up on an fMRI machine. We know what activates it, where, and why. If your brain does not release neurotransmitters, for example, you can't feel emotion. Those neurotransmitters, they're just chemicals. Do you need to drink water to survive? Yes. But our brain releases nothing like the amount of dopamine when you drink water versus when you smoke a cigarette. Do you need cigarettes to survive? No. But our brain does release dopamine when we smoke, addicting us to the product. Let me reiterate this. You don't make nearly as many choices as you think, even about subjective things like what you enjoy. But you can modify your environment and decrease outside influence, which is a decision that we all need to consider seriously. Let's investigate the environment-brain interaction in more depth. You may think an experiment on rats is meaningless because they are rat-brained and stupider than us. Well, I'm sorry to burst your species-centric bubble, but I can tell you it's not really a rat brain. It's a mammal brain, and our brains work the same way theirs do. But we can learn from more intelligent species than rats. Arya Rautenberg experimented on a spider monkey named Cleopatra 
and performed the same basic experiment as the rats with the sole purpose of studying the pleasure center of the brain, not learned behavior and avoidance. Cleopatra could push two levers. One shocked her pleasure center, and the other gave her food. Now, which lever do you think Cleopatra chose? Of course, Cleopatra pushed the pleasure center lever over and over again, ignoring food or water. But here's the amazing thing. When Cleopatra was removed from her cage, she displayed no signs of withdrawal. The monkey didn't miss something that she chose over her basic survival instincts. But if Cleopatra was put back into the cage and scientists removed the lever for her pleasure center, then she became violent. Now, all of a sudden, she missed the sensation. That's a big clue. And now we're going to jump species again all the way to human. So you're not supposed to put humans in cages and put electrodes into their brains, which means we have to find evidence in real-world occurrences through dumb luck. But real-world occurrences, while rare, are invaluable because it's much harder to make excuses not to believe the data. During the Vietnam War, heroin addiction became a serious problem. By the end of the war, 35% of soldiers had tried it, and 54% who had tried it became hopelessly addicted. Soldiers could be detoxed, and often were, and taken off the substance, but there was a 95% relapse rate. Richard Nixon prepared the country for a massive war on drugs upon the arrival of our troops back home. The thing is, it wasn't necessary. 95% of the soldiers who returned never tried the substance again. The only factor that changed was the environment, just like Cleopatra. Boredom isn't a good reason to start doing drugs. Well, arguably there aren't any good reasons to do drugs, but that was the reason in Vietnam. Some studies suggest boredom is important. It forces us to use our imagination. As a teacher, I sometimes wonder if young people are too stimulated and deprived of their innate creative thinking abilities. But too much boredom can make us do crazy things. Human beings will voluntarily choose pain over boredom. I've seen boredom experiments where subjects were told to sit in an empty room for 10 minutes. The only thing they could do was push a button that shocked them with a level of discomfort equal to a shot from a needle. Now, nobody likes getting shots from a needle, but one subject, a man, obviously, shocked himself 190 times, once every six seconds. Two-thirds of the men in the study and a third of all the women chose pain over boredom at least once. So, why do I bring this up? Because war can be boring. Our ideas about war come from TV and movies, which do not reflect real life. We did not have the technology we do today during the Vietnam War. The army did not know where Charlie would be, so we spread our resources everywhere we thought they might be. This left some people sitting, I'm not kidding, for years without ever going anywhere or doing anything. The stimulation from heroin was like tasting sugar after a lifetime of eating nothing but bread and water. But when these soldiers came home, they weren't bored anymore. They went back to work. They saw their families. They went grocery shopping. They went to church. They escaped their dependency because they also escaped the environment that snared them. Addiction, it turns out, embeds itself in memory and routine. But of course, Vietnam was a unique situation. 
most addicts don't have the option to pack up and begin again in a new place. What's even more problematic is, although we know the environment is one of, if not the most, powerful factors, it's almost impossible to pinpoint precisely what elements of the environment have the most impact. Let's close this episode by reminding ourselves what addiction is. Addiction is a behavior or action in which the reward is significantly outweighed by the detrimental cost. Yet, the person still cannot help but engage in it. You can't help it because that's how addiction works. It hijacks your brain. Your subconscious is vastly more powerful than your willpower. We have seen how it's even more powerful than the instinct to survive. But when it comes to the environment, we should engineer it in a way that sets us up for success. But you have to be aware of what's risky. Remember, things can only control you if you remain ignorant of them. Thanks for listening.